Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, my name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. I'm here today with Mark O'Brien. Mark is Baltimore's director of Opioid Overdose Prevention and Treatment. Mark, welcome. Thank you so much, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Okay. Many U.S. cities have first responders carrying the heroin antidote, naloxone. But in Baltimore, they have a loftier goal of getting the life-saving drug into the medicine cabinet of every single resident. Can you tell us about the impact the opioid epidemic has had in Baltimore, first and foremost, before we get to that innovative program that you're leading, Mark? Absolutely. So like the rest of the country, um, we are experiencing an epidemic of overdoses and overdose deaths in our city. In 2015 in Baltimore, we had 393 overdose deaths, and about 90% of these are related to opioids. This year alone, we've had 290 deaths in January through June. Now, in the first quarter of the year, we thought we had kind of turned a corner. We saw a small reduction in the number of overdose deaths in our city. And then in April through June, we saw that the number just skyrocketed. And the culprit here in Baltimore right now is fentanyl. Like a lot of the rest of the country, we're seeing these synthetic opioids that are just killing people um, left and right. And so four years ago, we had four fentanyl-related deaths in our city then 12, then 72. Last year, we had 120 fentanyl-related deaths. And this year in Baltimore, so far through June, we've had 149 fentanyl-related deaths. And these numbers, of course, can be um, a little abstract. Uh, but what this means really in our city is that every single day, there's somebody losing a lost loved one. These are our mothers and fathers, our sisters, brothers, friends, neighbors, sons and daughters, coworkers. I think about the fact that this means that every single day there's a table in our city with an empty seat. And so that's really the, the magnitude of the issue that we're dealing with is, is both a high number of deaths and that every single one of these deaths is a tragedy. Yeah. Wow. So for this new program, you know, th- that could make a, a big difference and hopefully it'll, it'll make a dent in this in the loss of life that you're experiencing in Baltimore. So the new program, it has its roots in a program that's been around for a while, and that's to propagate uh, naloxone throughout the community. And you called that staying alive. Can you tell us a little bit about the beginnings of that? 
Yeah, so Staying Alive has been around for, I want to say, about eight years. Um, and it used to be um, that because naloxone is a prescription medication, we had to have physicians on site uh, to do the prescribing. There, it was a little bit of an onerous process, and we were able to prescribe naloxone for a large number of patients, but not reach uh, the magnitude and volume of people that we really wanted uh, to get this out to. And of course, our, our health commissioner has set a goal of having this in the medicine cabinet of every resident in our city. And we have 620,000 residents in Baltimore. Well, last fall, um, we had le legislation passed uh, to create what's called an overdose response program in the state of Maryland. And the way this works is that um, a physician is able to issue a standing order. And so Dr. Wen, our health commissioner, has issued a standing order that covers all 620,000 residents of Baltimore. And now people can just get a short training and they're able to get a prescription for naloxone based on that short training that can be delivered by any lay person that we, that we train to, de to deliver the naloxone training. And so through our needle exchange program here in Baltimore and our staying alive program, we have trained uh, thousands of people in the city to administer naloxone. And, and, and when we give these uh, trainings in the hardest hit parts of our city, we're actually distributing the medication right on site. Wow, that's great. So um, with 620,000 residents, boy, that, that just, your goal seems so overwhelming. So how are you approaching getting it into everybody's hands that way? Yeah, so I mean, it can be a little overwhelming. And I should start by saying that we, we so we started doing this very aggressively last January, January 2015. Um, and then we had the overdose response program legislation that, that really enabled us to open this up uh, more broadly. Um, and we so far we've we've trained fifteen thousand people um, uh, with the with the very ambitious goal of reaching all the residents of our city. We've trained fifteen thousand people, and what we've done because we do have limited resources and and capacity for delivering this this training is we've really targeted hot spot areas of our city. So we have uh, five overdose response programs actually in Baltimore, the largest is the Baltimore City Health Department's Community Risk Reduction Services and our partner, Behavioral Health System Baltimore. And these two programs go out into the hardest hit parts of the city based on uh, maps of where we know there are high rates of overdose. And they're out there six days a week providing training. Um, our needle exchange van provides the naloxone training and gives a unit of naloxone to every single needle exchange client. And when they're doing uh, the training out in these hotspot neighborhoods, we're also giving out the medication. So we've given out 12,000 naloxone units in that time. Um, we're also out doing trainings at community-based organizations, uh, uh, employers, wherever anyone will host us, we're, we're willing to go and do the training. And in July, Narcan, the, uh, the nasal spray formulation for naloxone, was added to our state's Medicaid preferred drug list. So this is a huge opportunity for us. Uh, because of because of the cost of naloxone is really the limiting factor for us being able to do this on a larger scale. Uh, with the Medicaid reimbursement for Narcan, and, and it's a dollar copay for anyone who has Medicaid in our state now, um, we're we're hoping to ramp this up uh, and and train at an even higher rate since people are able to get the medication at their pharmacy for only a dollar. Wow. And I understand one of the ways that uh, you're also targeting to get this out further into the community is on voting day. You go to where they're voting, to all the polls. That's exactly right. We were So we started doing this uh, uh, for the primaries this past spring, and, and we'll be out there again. We think that's a great way to reach people. 
Um, another thing that we've recently done is implemented a volunteer agreement where uh, members of the community can sign an agreement to make sure that they're adhering to the to the procedures that the state requires, um, that they're getting us the appropriate paperwork, and we're going to start letting volunteers go out into the community uh, to their places of work and and conduct this training under our overdose response program. So we think that's another way to really reach more people. Sure, absolutely. So, Mark, any idea how many lives have been saved so far because of your program? Yeah, so like I said, we've, we've distributed 12,000 units of naloxone, and when we do that, we ask everyone to come back and let us know if they use it. And so we do get reports back. We assume that this is actually kind of a low count because not everyone who we distribute naloxone to is going to come back and let us know. Um, but we've received reports of 428 overdoses that members of our community have reversed since January 2015. And so, you know, uh, as I mentioned, that can be an abstract number, but we are literally talking about 428 families uh, that are not mourning a lost loved one that are still whole because of this effort. Wow, that's terrific. So what have been the challenges that you've had to overcome and hurdles you've had to overcome in getting this program going in your community? So uh, frankly, the, the biggest challenge is that medication is costly. So a lot of public health interventions, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, varieties of programs, the largest expense you're usually talking about is staff, uh, staff time. Uh, but with this kind of program, the largest expense is naloxone. Um, so we're, we're currently paying $75 for um, two doses of Narcan nasal spray. Um, and uh very happy that the pharmaceutical companies, of course, have, have developed these medications that can save lives. Uh, but the cost for, for a, a public health agency in a, in a city that's not rich um, can be pretty prohibitive. And that really is the limiting factor on how much we're able to do. Yeah. Okay. So for communities that would want to take this on and do a similar program in their own neighborhood, what advice would you give to them? I think the biggest advice and something that the health commissioner, Dr. Wang, here in Baltimore uh, uh, is, is very big on, on hammering home with us is to never let the perfect be the enemy of the good. So there are going to be hiccups along the way. Uh, there are going to be processes that you need to that you need to sort of change up and and streamline and adjust as uh, as you kind of figure out what the reality is on the ground. Uh, but we would rather get started right away. And figure out those things on the fly because there are lives to start saving today. So I'll, gi I'll give you an example of something we're trying to do right now, uh, where we're where we're certainly going to be moving forward and, and adjusting our approach and hopefully uh, kind of doing things in a better way. But um, we've been able to start getting daily updates from our emergency medical services here in Baltimore on where they are responding to overdoses. Um, so these are non-fatal overdoses. And like I said earlier, we're we're sending our needle exchange and street outreach teams to do naloxone training in the parts of our city that have been hardest hit historically. But at the same time, we know, especially with fentanyl, when it gets into a batch of drugs, there are going to be spikes in overdoses in certain parts of our city. And so we're analyzing EMS data on a daily basis to identify where and when those spikes occur and as close to real time as we can. And so, for example, if we're going to be in, I'll just tell you some of the some of the neighborhoods in our city, uh, if we're going to be in Highland Town tomorrow, 
to deliver naloxone training, but we hear that in Sandtown, Winchester, there's been a big spike in overdoses. We want to redeploy those resources and be in Sandtown, Winchester, telling people about the spike, spike in overdoses, because we're hearing uh, that, that folks who are using the drugs really don't want fentanyl. They're aware of the risks. They don't want to put themselves in that kind of danger. They're more comfortable with heroin that they've been, uh, that they've been using historically. And so we want to inform the public about the presence of that overdose spike as, as a proxy for identifying potential fentanyl in that neighborhood. We're uh, reaching out to all the mental health and substance use providers and, and alerting them to the overdose spike so that they can warn their patients and ask their patients to warn their family members and their neighbors. Um, but, but all of this is happening with about a 24-hour lag. And so as much as we would like to have real-time awareness of these spikes, right now what we can do is do this with a 24-hour lag. And we're trying to automate that process so that we can make that lag time closer to an hour or two and start responding more quickly. But it gets back to my point of this is something that we can do, that we can do pretty well. And so even though we'd like to be able to do this even closer to real time, we're not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good here. Okay. So uh, great examples there. I, I just wonder, one thing that we're hearing quite a bit is that the addicts, they hear where the good stuff is, the fentanyl or carfentanyl lace, the really strong stuff. And there's some of them, quite a few of them, that'll flock to that. So how does that work in, in your community? And are you seeing a similar thing in your community? So, so my understanding is that this is something um, that folks have been concerned about for a long time, um, and especially with heroin, that people would hear about heroin overdoses. And, and as you're saying, folks would flock to wherever that, that neighborhood was, where that supply was. Um, and, and frankly, what we're hearing more recently, um, both uh, in, in research, um, but also anecdotally through our needle exchange van, is that that's not really happening, especially as fentanyl, carfentanyl, some of these synthetic opioids are hitting the street. And it's for a couple of reasons. Um, and this is this is information that we are you know, getting firsthand from our needle exchange clients who we know are, who are out, um, using intravenous drugs. They have very close relationships with the people who work on our needle exchange van. And they're telling us for two reasons that they're avoiding these drugs when they're aware of them. One is that they know that this is more dangerous. They're hearing about the high rates of overdose. They're having friends, neighbors, people that they know who are overdosing and dying. So they're aware of the risk. The other part of this is that fentanyl is a little bit different from heroin. It is stronger. It's more potent, it's more deadly, but it's also shorter acting. So there's also that, uh, that kind of substance use, uh, the, you know, the addicted mind um, can make us think very differently about things because this is a brain disease. Um, and they're seeing this as, as also uh, not something that they want to get. And they're frankly feeling a little ripped off from when they find out that that's what they're getting because it's a shorter acting high. Wow. That is new information. That is that is not what I'd uh, I'd heard here in our community. So that's good. And and you were hearing the same thing. Then I take it, Mark, in your community, where they go for the good stuff. And so this is yes, a, this is really a change in that. I think that that's exactly right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Any other unique programs that you are aware of or involved in that are making a difference in the opioid epidemic there in Baltimore? Um. So I think the big thing that we talk about and are are working on is that. It's wonderful, so critical to save a life today by reversing an overdose with naloxone. Um, but that's really treating the very acute uh, and, you know, very final symptom of addiction. 
And so what we're trying to do is also engage in public education to prevent people from beginning substance use. So we have a campaign called the Don't Die campaign, and we've been um, advertising on billboards, our, our bus stops, our buses, um, wherever we can get the word out about the risks of overdose, but also the opportunity to get trained on naloxone and be prepared to save a life. And you can actually go to don'tdie.org, D-O-N-T-D-I-E.org, and you can get trained to administer naloxone right there on our website. And if you're in Maryland, that actually certifies you under our overdose response program to go to the pharmacy and get naloxone. Um, so it's a public education campaign combined with that naloxone training. We're also reaching out to physicians, hospitals all across our city, dentists, any prescribers, because, because frankly, uh, Dr. Wen, our health commissioner, will be the first to acknowledge this, and I, I'm not a doctor, but but she is, that in her medical training, they really weren't given a lot of information about opioids, about the risks of addiction, about responding to overdose. Um, and and uh, our society has had a culture that, that really focuses on treating pain right away. Um, uh, that, that was a big factor in the increase in opioid addictions and overdoses that we've seen. So we're educating prescribers. That we're telling them about the new CDC guidelines that that uh, direct prescribers to be more judicious with uh, opioids and, and consider other pain treatment options. And um, so that effort has, has started to bear fruit. We're also focusing on expanding treatment. So we used to have, you know, three or four different phone lines that people had to call if they wanted substance use treatment, mental health treatment, crisis services. Um, and we worked with our partners in the city to combine all of those lines into a single 24-7 crisis information and referral line. So we want to be able to streamline the process for people to get into addiction treatment. And now they can call that line 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, they can speak to a counselor who can do a, a quick, you know, not kind of clinical assessment, just, but just a sort of quick assessment of what their needs are. Um, if they need crisis services, we're able to send out our crisis services, um, but also giving them information about services that are available in the city and actual referrals to treatment right there on the phone line. Um, and that's available again 24-7. Um, so we believe that that is, that is a, a great program for expanding access to treatment. And then we're also going through a planning process, a strategic planning process around expanding the number of substance use disorder providers in the city who are prescribing buprenorphine, methadone, buprenorphine, uh, naltrexone. The, you know, these are the FDA-approved medications for the treatment of opioid use disorders. So the National Institutes uh, of Drug Abuse says that medications are are a uh, an appropriate treatment for opioid use disorders, and so we are very aggressively trying to expand access to those treatments in our city. Okay. So when somebody says that they want to go into treatment, one of the big challenges that we have are finding beds, yeah. lack of availability there. Are you experiencing the same thing? And if so, what do you, what, what's being done in, in your community to help? So I think one thing about this is um, with the health reform law, um, our, our state is switching to a fee-for-service model for substance use and mental health treatment, except for on the residential side. So what that means is that instead of being uh, grant funded, where programs are, you know, provided a certain number of dollars to provide, to have available a certain number of beds for treatment um, or a certain number of slots, um, these treatment providers are now able to get reimbursed on a fee-for-service basis for Medicaid. And so that has addressed some of the issue. Um, historically, in Baltimore, we have not had a huge problem with capacity. We are, we are usually able to get people into treatment pretty quickly. 
Um, but I think what where we do see kind of uh, some discrepancies is that there's a wide range and a, and a lot of variety in the quality of treatment that people can get. So um, uh, I think that's kind of the hurdle here is making sure that while we have great capacity for addiction treatment, we want to make sure that all of our providers are giving the highest quality of care. Um, and the other part of this is we want to make sure that there's very, very little lag time when people do need to get into treatment. Um, that they're able to get in quickly because we have to take that opportunity to start making a person healthier when they're ready to do it. Um, and, and so that's kind of been our, and, and the other part of this is, is also, um, is kind of the demand side, especially as we're moving to that fee for service model is, um, you know, we're worrying about capacity and quality, but also making sure that we're encouraging people by reducing stigma, talking about the opportunities for recovery. We're encouraging people to get into the care that they need. Wow. Well, I, uh, I want to thank you for your time today, Mark. That's, uh, it's amazing what, uh, what you and your group are accomplishing there in Baltimore. Um, any final words for, uh, for our listeners? Um, just that, you know, this is, this is a, um, this is a public health emergency that we're facing across our country. And, and when we see other diseases um, causing the magnitude of destruction that opioid use disorders are causing in our country right now, the resources that are dedicated to, to these problems are enormous. Um, and this is a disease of the brain that is killing people in our country, in our city in Baltimore, uh, at just incredible, astonishing rates and rates that are increasing dramatically. And we need resources that correspond to the magnitude of this problem. And that means city resources, state resources, federal resources, private resources. We need an all-hands-on-deck approach that says that this issue is as important as the lives that we're losing. So true. Well, thank you, Mark. Thank you so much for having me on, Greg. I really appreciate it. Okay. We've been visiting today with Mark O'Brien, Baltimore's Director of Opioid Overdose Prevention and Treatment. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.